I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome everyone to episode 23 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hello, good. I um, I feel a bit more excited than I should because I brought in a new warm-up exercise for us to do. I listened to a voice coach, uh, Sally Prosser, and she, we've been making horse noises for quite yeah, a while. we have. It's been very exciting. <laughs> Sounds like a bit of an animal farm in here, actually. <laughs> well, you kind of got a bit sidetracked doing noises that you do to your daughter. I think that's, that's right. where the animal farm came from, but yeah. <laughs> well, we're really well warmed up. That's we are. The, that's the plus. Yeah. We got some Patreon shout-outs this week, Chloe. We do. Thank you and welcome to June Tate, Holly Flood, Polly, Erin Patterson, Mishy, Rachel, Claire, Jules, Kerry Leary, Catherine Morton, Ashley Wildey, Susan Judd, Elizabeth Wood, Aaron Campbell, Lucy Taylor and Changer. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. We have some graphic and disturbing content in today's episode, and we also discuss a transgender person in their life pre-transition. So we'd encourage our listeners to consider this and to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today we're talking about a little-known case from 2014 in the Sunshine State of Queensland. But our tale doesn't start there. Indeed, it begins over in Indonesia, not far from Bali, which for Australians is probably one of, if not the most popular holiday spots in modern times. And for the pair we're discussing today, I'm sure the bintangs were flowing and the beach was calling them during their stay in Bali also. But for Marcus and Mayang, those crystal clear blue waters would eventually turn very murky and in the end, completely dark. Today, we begin this case with a phone call. Uh, g'day, is this a 24-hour electrician? Hey. Yeah, um, I've got a bit of a problem. Um, I was uh, cooking on my stove, stove, it's an electric stove, and um, the stockpot boiled over, dripped down, and um, got into the oven, and yeah. basically made the, this big bang, and then all my power yeah. turned off. Does it sound like something you'd be able to fix today? Yeah, it should be, yeah. So just, you reckon just to blow a fuse or something? Yeah, by the sound of things. Sumatra is the largest island that is solely part of Indonesia. Flanked by the Indian Ocean to its west, the Java Sea to its east, and split by the equatorial line, Sumatra is a warm, humid and tropical place. Peppered with active volcanoes, rivers, mangrove swamps and dense rainforests, 
Sumatra has also played host to severe deforestation in the past 35 years, resulting in a 50% decline in its native tropical rainforest. This has also led to the critical endangerment of many native animal species, including the Sumatran tiger, elephant, rhinoceros and the orangutan. At the southern tip of Sumatra is the province of Langpung, which is the home to around 8 million inhabitants. Sumatra itself has over 50 million, a lush area full of coffee and cocoa bean farms. It's also a relatively unstable place in terms of the geology. In 2005, there was a 6.4 magnitude earthquake, and in the nearby Sunda Strait, there's the volcano of Krakatoa, which infamously erupted in the late 1800s and took tens of thousands of casualties. And it was here in Lampung, back in 1986, Febri Andrian Sire was born. His mother, Nining Sukani, had two girls after Febri. They were a happy family by all reports. He was very helpful to his mother day to day and was quite an insightful young person. Febri was also elegant, perhaps dainty, and from a young age displayed many feminine tendencies. Indeed, Febri had mostly female friends as he grew up, and his mother even thought of him and subsequently treated him like one of the girls. It was a natural thing. Febri gravitated more towards femininity than masculinity, enjoyed female company, and eventually displayed an interest in males. In the latter part of high school, Febri would even feud with a girlfriend over another young man's affections. Febri's mother, Ninning, accepted him for the person he was. She loved him unreservedly, no matter what path in life he wanted to take, and it would be around the age of 22, in 2008, that February came out as transgender and started presenting as a woman. He was determined about it and put his mind to becoming the person he felt he truly was. February picked a new name, Mayang Presetio, which was a nod to a well-known Indonesian singer, and made the transition to living as a female. Mayang continued living with her family in Lampung and was a caring and good-natured daughter. But eventually, Mayang grew restless. And what it was that motivated Mayang next, we can't be sure. Whether it was her searching for adventure or financially motivated or as part of her personal journey. Whatever the case, in her mid-twenties, Mayang moved to Australia. While in Melbourne, she began engaging in sex work at a business called the Pleasure Dome. This place described itself as the Grey City's finest all-sex, premium male and transsexual agency. But as we said, whatever Mayang's motivations for this decision were, the financial side of things was certainly a clear benefit. She was earning good money, but she used much of that to support her family back in Indonesia. Mayang regularly sent funds back to pay for her sister's school books and fees and to support her mother and grandmother. So she cared very much for her family and it's entirely possible, looking at this, that her reasoning for venturing to Australia in the first place was for financial benefit. While she was working at the Pleasure Dome, Mayang met a young man just a year older than her named Marcus Volk. Volk was also a sex worker and the pair immediately hit it off and entered some form of a relationship. How exclusive or open that was to begin with, we're not sure, but pretty quickly it turned serious, and the pair took off through Asia and Europe, travelling and working within the sex industry as they went. Marcus Volk, 27 at this time, soon to turn 28, was born in Geelong, Victoria, He was one of three children in a well-regarded local family. The Volk family set up camp away from Geelong, however, near the former gold rush town of Ballarat, just out of town in a suburb called Haddon. Ballarat is actually the third largest inland Australian city with around 100,000 inhabitants. It's now a key regional centre in Victoria, but in the mid-1800s was a gold rush town, as we said, Nowadays, I think of Sovereign Hill, which many of us who went to school in Victoria would have attended on excursions. But there's also a few educational institutions up there that are well regarded, some high schools and universities. 
We've also heard in recent times about the Catholic Church Archdiocese in Ballarat being somewhat of a haven for pedophile priests. Volk, an 80s child, grew up a healthy kid in the 90s, enjoying much of the same stuff I enjoyed as a kid. Shane Moore 99 on the first iteration of the PlayStation and karate in hopes of becoming the next Daniel LaRusso. And it wasn't Spotify back then, we're talking Sony Discmans and Rage on a Sunday morning, or video hits for those who had less street cred. Volk's father actually operated a local karate dojo, and Marcus would go on to train throughout his teens and earn himself a black belt. Stemming from this was an interest in health and general fitness and well-being. Volk often posted on his Facebook about nutrition, veganism and human rights issues. He was an intelligent and friendly young man who made many friends in the area as he grew up. But some of those friends could see a darker side to Marcus Volk, and this could have been in either his temper and demeanour on occasion or in the quietness or withdrawn behaviour he sometimes displayed. And it turned out there was a reason for this. Volk, from about the age of 18 or 19, began to display symptoms of anxiety, depression and sleep disturbance. During this period in his life, Volk attempted suicide by overdosing on paracetamol tablets. It was said he recovered quite well from this, but I'm not sure that was the case because only 18 months or so later, Volk was sent to the Ballarat Psychiatric Service when this sleep disturbance surfaced alongside what was diagnosed as moderate depression. He'd lost a significant amount of weight prior to this, 10 to 15 kilograms, in a very short space of time, very noticeable to his family and partner at the time. So he was assessed, diagnosed and subsequently medicated and within a month, Volk was showing drastic signs of improvement. He was eating again, sleeping somewhat better, but overall he was just in better spirits seemingly. But Volk would have an ongoing battle with his mental health. He had what was described as a mild body image disturbance, and you're probably a bit more knowledgeable with these things than I, Chloe, but I inferred this to be the intersection for Marcus Volk between his mental health battles and the physical manifestation of that. Yeah, your body image is your internalised view of your weight, shape and appearance, and a disturbance refers to a range of behaviours related to your body image, so things like thinking you're overweight when you're underweight or feeling anxious about your size. Volk was a health nut, a gym junkie, very physically fit, and we know about his karate, which he had returned to training in by this time in 2008. He wasn't a smoker or a drinker, and would often treat different ailments he had, such as stomach and skin conditions, with naturopathic remedies. So you've got a young man battling with anxiety and depression, having trouble sleeping, and has a body image disturbance. And he's been seeking help, right? Not only was he medicated, he was seeing a psychiatrist, and this eventually got to a point where everyone thought he was essentially recovered. Outwardly, he was doing better physically and mentally. This was an intelligent young man from a good family who sought help and was looking onward and upward after a battle in his late teens, early 20s. And I think there'd be a lot of young men out there who could really identify with what Marcus Volk went through at this time. Volk had trained as a cook or chef. It's unclear exactly what formal training he had in that respect, but he did undertake a culinary-based vocation, and he'd end up leaving his home in Haddon, near Ballarat, to go and travel around the world. Volk had landed a sweet gig as a chef on board a cruise liner, preparing meals for the masses as they sailed across the oceans. So this was going to be a blast for him. And it was on board one of these cruises, Volk told his family he'd met a strikingly beautiful young woman from Indonesia. She was also a chef, and her name was Mayang Presetio. The problem was... Volk wasn't on a cruise ship cooking omelettes for tourists. He was in Melbourne, working at the Pleasure Dome as a sex worker. So he was making a crust, but not the way a chef traditionally would. A whirlwind romance seemingly ensued. 
Volk, undoubtedly swept away by the striking young Myang's vibrant and spirited personality, and Myang taken with Volk's masculinity, intelligence, and free spirit. The two would travel throughout Asia and Europe over the next two years, both of them engaging actively in sex work as they went. They would ultimately wind up tying the knot in Denmark, of all places, on the 1st of August 2013. While living in Denmark shortly after they'd married, Myang took Volk back to her native Lampung, Sumatra, to meet her family. And her mother was instantly taken with Marcus Volk. He was kind and loving, engaged in local traditions. He was a great cook, obviously, so he dazzled on the hot plate, whipping up local delicacies such as chilli fish and satay. He was quite taken with the local ingredients, Volk, just as his in-laws were seemingly taken with him. The only blight on Volk's record while meeting his new in-laws was that he'd accidentally left the gate open once, which led to the family dog escaping. Other than that, it was a good visit. Despite some friends and family noting that Volk and Myang fought a bit, and quite fervently, but this wasn't at odds with Myang's passionate personality. She was occasionally jealous and temperamental, it was said. The pair remained in Indonesia for a time thereafter, relocating to Bali, where they continued to live their lives and engage in sex work. But Marcus Volk had told his family nothing of his marriage to Myang, or indeed much about her at all, seemingly. The couple returned to Australia in 2014, with Volk working in both Victoria and Queensland before the pair eventually settled in Brisbane, the suburb of Tenerife. Volk was working as a chef at a restaurant in Bulimba, but he and Myang quickly began advertising their services for sex work in a more private setting, a more illicit setting away from the legality of their former employer at the Pleasure Dome. So with this comes greater risk, obviously, because there's fewer screening protocols of clientele and potentially more opportunities to be exposed to a seedier underbelly, involving illicit substances, for example. Myang's Tinder profile read, T.S. Myang, the most exotic shemale, super busty, very feminine-like supermodel, Better in real life, pictures are always real, real deal, pre-op, functional hot TS, with great fit and hot body to enjoy. Volk, meanwhile, advertised himself as Health XL, a young and sexy Australian boy open to all kinds of people, ages and backgrounds. During this time, Volk had become more and more withdrawn. His contact with his family was sporadic and limited to emails and Skype on occasion, He very much kept the majority of his emotions and troubles bottled up. He was also keeping in touch with a former partner from Ballarat over email, and he was seemingly more forthcoming with information to this former partner. Through many of these communications, we'd learned that Volk had racked up quite a sum of credit card debt during this time since he'd been with Myang throughout 2013-14, it was also suggested that his relationship with Myang was financial. He described it as a business relationship and eventually he planned on ceasing sex work altogether to become a dog breeder. Dog breeding was something that Myang had expressed an interest in doing as well. Myang was making some decent coin conducting sex work. Her rate was advertised as $200 for 30 minutes or $500 an hour for outcalls. And she was helping Volk pay back a lot of his debt. In return for this, Volk was to sponsor Myang so she could get her visa and stay in Australia indefinitely. When things would get tense between the pair, the occasionally temperamental Myang would threaten the surly Volk that she'd tell his family about them and what they'd been doing if he left her or didn't follow through with his promise to sponsor her. Myang also wasn't happy that Volk had kept in touch with his former partner over email. 
But despite all of this, the pair were seemingly very much in a committed relationship, albeit turbulent at times. They had a joint bank account, they'd posted photos together on Facebook, and Volk would comment to work colleagues on occasion about his crazy girlfriend. So from this, we can probably glean that the marriage was for financial purposes, for Myang to get her visa, and for Volk to get his accrued debt paid off. But outside of that, they seemed to have a genuine relationship and had plans to breed these dogs together. On the 6th of September 2014, the pair found an apartment at the 113 building at 113 Commercial Road, Tenerife. They wanted a place that would allow dogs to facilitate this ambition for the future. The building manager, Debrina Hughes, showed the couple around several units before they settled on one. They were softly spoken, occasionally held hands. Volk did most of the talking, however, Myang did have a good grasp of English and conversed fluently when engaged. They entered into a six-month lease on a one-bedroom ground floor unit with a courtyard and moved in just a week later. Over the next month, the couple's individual feelings would begin to surface and begin to seep into their relationship, having a profound impact. Volk was beginning to feel lethargic, depressed and anxious again and indeed sought medical help to treat him for this. He was prescribed NDEP, an antidepressant with sedative effects, to help him cope day to day. Mai Yang, meanwhile, missed her family in Indonesia a great deal. Despite buying five pugs with the intent to breed them and her and Volk engaging in sex work from their apartment in Tenerife, she was bored and felt isolated. She dreamt of returning to Indonesia and indeed emailed a friend named Addy about this in late September, just weeks after they'd moved in. It seemed as though she planned to go back and stay for a period of approximately six months or so, but indicated Volk would be with her, along with the dogs. Whether Volk wanted to go, or with his own troubles, if this trip was even on his radar, I'm not sure. On the 2nd of October, however, as Volk was taking a walk with a client of his down to the local river, Mayan called and began raging down the phone line. Volk seemed to clam right up and cease talking freely and honestly as he had been with the client to that point. The client could hear Myang screaming at Volk down the phone, and Volk's stilted and clinical replies ended with him telling his client that they'd have to finish up and head back to the apartment, as his flatmate wanted him back to help clean the dogs. Volk returned to their unit with his client, and upon entering, the client immediately noticed the overwhelming smell of urine-soaked carpet due to the dogs. The five pugs were kept in a small enclosure and it was a one-bedroom apartment anyway, so it wouldn't have taken much for the scent to really permeate the nostrils in this environment. So things finished up with this client of Volks, and he proceeded to help Myang clean the dogs, presumably. What exactly transpired after that, we don't know. But what we do know is that sometime between 11.30pm and midnight, Myang and Volk would resume their heated argument from earlier that day. And I say argument, neighbours who overheard and viewed moments of the row described it more as Myang screaming at the top of her lungs at Volk, who sat on the couch staring into space, almost unresponsive. Myang was heard to have said things like, fuck you, I can't believe you, and called Volk stupid at various points during the argument. The entire time, Volk hardly reacted at all to his partner's verbal onslaughts. After the heat of their initial quarrel subsided, they resumed a protracted argument somewhere around 1.30am, this time not as loud, but Myang once again being the predominant voice neighbours could hear. What they were fighting over exactly, one can only deduce and assume from what we know about them as individuals and their relationship to this point. But one thing we do know for sure is that sometime in the early morning hours of the 3rd of October 2014, Volk attacked his partner Myang with a knife and stabbed her multiple times. A stab wound to the front of her neck ultimately took her life, and either during or following this, Volk cut and injured his own hand. 
Volk had commented to work colleagues that Myang had come at him with a knife once before. So was this catastrophic overreaction just that? His reaction to another attack? Or was it a build-up and trigger response to the enduring series of fights? Or worse, something that had forethought? Whatever the case, Marcus Volk's mind would go to a very dark place after committing this horrendous act. In the following 24 hours, he'd purchase rubber gloves, bleach, a meat cleaver and a 36.5 litre stock pot. Volk was seemingly going to attempt to use his chef skills to try and get rid of Mai Yang's body. He systematically dismembered her and attempted to dissolve her body parts thereafter in caustic soda on the boiling stovetop. Now obviously there's going to be a fairly strong smell coming from such a grotesque activity and this was noticed by occupants, neighbours and the unit manager Mrs Hughes. Air fresheners were placed in the hallway to deal with the stench of off-meat emanating from the unit. Volk, meanwhile, fobbed off the odour as merely being the smell of a pork broth he was making that had boiled over. Around dinner time that night, Volk obviously realised he had some housework to do to cover up the sickening crime he'd committed. He went to the suburb of Newstead and from a supermarket bought gloves, bleach, a scrubbing brush, garbage bags laundry soak and wipes. He then caught a cab to the hospital to seek treatment for his cut hand, telling the driver along the way as he wrapped his wound that he'd been chopping onions and the knife slipped, an elementary mistake for a chef. But Volk's story would change at the hospital, where he told them as they treated the wound that he'd suffered the cut at the hands of his girlfriend. He said they were fighting earlier that day and he grabbed the knife from her, and she then pulled it from his hand. So this might well have been possible if Volk's story about Myang attacking him in the past was true, but they could also have been fabricated. Either way, Volk's hand did have a severed tendon. Meanwhile, his partner was lying dissected and boiling in a pot back in their apartment. By the following day, the smell from within the apartment had gotten worse. Sabrina Hughes had to bring it up with Volk and texted him, saying that he needed to get something done about it. She then went and visited Volk and noticed a burning smell coming from within the place. She also noticed Volk's bandaged hand. He told the building manager he had simply gone out briefly and left the stock pot boiling and it had burnt dry. Once again, another rudimentary mistake from an alleged chef. Mrs Hughes was obviously concerned but at this stage, probably more so for the welfare of other tenants and not wanting to be dealing with complaints that were no doubt coming her way. With the air fresheners barely taking the edge off the stench in the hallway now, Volk had to do something. He began a clean-up of the premises and later that day made a phone call to an electrician named Brad Coyne. And this takes us back to the phone call we heard during the introduction. Coyne, a 24-hour electrician, attended Volk's premises that evening after dinner time to fix what Volk said was likely a blown fuse in his oven. When Coyne arrived, the smell wafting from within the apartment was overwhelming. Volk commented that he'd boiled over a pork broth and that's what had damaged the electrics in the oven. His bandaged hand, meanwhile, was a result of his psycho ex-girlfriend, who tried to attack him with a knife, which he then grabbed to disarm her. Coyne described the odour as pungent, putrid and a bit like dog food. Nevertheless, he had a job to do and he needed access to the main switchboard to do it. This required facilitation by the building manager, Debrina Hughes. Hughes and her husband, Kevin, organised access for Coyne with Volk in tow. But upon heading back to the unit, Mrs Hughes tried to come inside. This received a sharp response from Volk, who told her she couldn't come in and had to give him seven days' notice. Mrs Hughes advised that the electrical fault was a safety issue. She could therefore enter. Upon entering, she saw much of what Brad Coyne had already witnessed and had explained by an increasingly less credible Marcus Volk. Bloodstains, allegedly from Volk's hand, were apparent on the carpet alongside other damage within the unit. Mrs Hughes took photos of all of this, 
and immediately after her inspection, contacted the police to attend the premises. This was around 9pm that police were called for what was classified at the time as a welfare check, but we know to be something much more sinister. Constable Liam McWinney and Senior Constable Brian Reid attended the unit complex around 10 minutes later, meeting Mrs Hughes outside before proceeding to Marcus Volk's apartment. They engaged in a conversation with Volk in the hallway. When questioned about Myang's whereabouts, Volk said they'd had a fight and she'd left, presumably to head back to Indonesia, adding that she was just on a visitor visa but was in the process of applying for a partner visa. But Volk's demeanour would change dramatically when the police told him they intended to enter the unit without a warrant. Volk, the blood draining from his face, was told by the officers that due to the reports of blood seen within the unit, combined with the reported foul smell, was reason enough for them to have a look around. She's obviously not in there, Volk commented, noting that Mrs Hughes had already checked inside. Volk, when he realised the police weren't going to leave without inspecting the unit, had to think fast. And at this point, you have to wonder what the police were thinking. I mean, they really had no reason to believe Mai Yang's dismembered body was inside. On the surface, Volk's story about his hand and the pig broth boiling over wasn't unbelievable, factoring his profession. Still, they didn't know Marcus Volk and they needed to at least check things out. But what was Volk going to do? How was he going to react? We've already seen what he's capable of, and he's young, fit, karate black belt who's just stabbed and dismembered his partner. What were the police walking into here? Was Volk going to attack them? Police had no reason to think anything like this about a seemingly normal young man who'd perhaps had a row that had gotten out of hand with his girlfriend. Volk, finally realising they were coming in whether he liked it or not, asked the officers if he could have just a moment to secure his dogs. The five pugs were running loose in the place and he didn't want them getting under the officers' feet when they came in. On face value, it seemed like a reasonable request. He was being compliant enough. The officers allowed Volk to secure his dogs, but this would turn out to be a huge mistake. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Constable McWinnie wasn't keen on confronting a bunch of dogs upon entering the apartment, and Senior Constable Reed thought that although Volk's demeanour had taken a turn when the officers said they wanted to come inside, he'd still be cooperative. And the officers, at the end of the day, thought it was best to keep Volk on site, compliant, and to see what transpired when they got inside. But the question remained, with what we know Marcus Volk had done and was capable of, what was he going to do now? Volk, after the police gave him the A-OK to secure his dogs, quickly slipped into his apartment. Then the two officers heard a metallic click from inside the unit. Did Volk have a knife? or possibly a firearm, or it could have simply been the latch on the dog enclosure. But none of those possibilities would be true, the officers would discover, when Debrina Hughes re-entered the premises from out front. She told McWinnie and Reed that Marcus Volk had fled, 
bailed out the back of his unit and high-jumped it over the railing with a knife in his hand, like a crazed Tim Forsyth. Volk ran, fast, through gardens and over another fence, sprinted for a ways and made sharp turns in an attempt to lose the police. After a while, Volk saw a commercial brick premises up ahead and inside were a bunch of industrial-sized dumpsters, like you'd see out the back of a supermarket or similar. Volk jumped inside one to hide. Meanwhile, the police, back at the apartment, had realised the metallic click was simply Volk locking the door to get a head start. Debrina Hughes alerted the officers to Volk's escape and McWinnie and Reed gave chase. When they couldn't locate Volk to begin with, the crafty youngster was fit and quick on his feet evidently, they called for backup. The dog squad and other officers came to head up the search for Volk as Reed and McQuinney went back to the apartment and re-entered. And it didn't take long for the pair to stumble across the grisly and gruesome discovery of Mayang Presetio's dismembered body. In the kitchen, a large stockpot lay on the floor in a pool of blood, and within the pot, two human feet were poking out. A black garbage bag with severed body parts was found in the washing machine. Quite clearly, it was a horrific crime scene, this apartment, and as such, police locked things down as to not contaminate the scene. So the chase was on now, with the discovery of what the police assumed to be Mayang's body, which would later be confirmed, Volk was effectively a fugitive on the run. Senior Constable Robert Richardson arrived next with his tracking dog named Zuma. Zuma was given Volk's scent and quickly began tracking down Dath Street towards Vernon Terrace and around to an underground car park of sorts underneath a brick commercial building. Within this dark underground car park were a number of commercial-sized waste bins or dumpsters. Zuma indicated strongly towards one of the bins. Police swooped in swiftly and quietly, surrounding the bin with their guns drawn. After just a moment, the officers pounced and kicked the bin over. Marcus Volk's body rolled out onto the concrete floor, a smattering of red across the young man's chest. Detective Sergeant Jakes yelled to Volk to surrender. Police were present and armed. But it was apparent pretty quickly that Volk was no threat. He'd slit his own throat. Volk was soaked in blood and had noticeable deep lacerations to his throat and wrists. Officers tended to him and attempted to revive Volk, but it was to no avail. After a short time and a futile final attempt from paramedics, Marcus Volk was declared deceased at the scene. Police later found a 35cm kitchen knife inside the bin upon inspection, and it was deemed during the autopsy days later that Volk had indeed used this item on himself in an act of suicide once he realised discovery of his crime was inevitable. Myang's autopsy too revealed much of what we already know about her attack, numerous stab wounds, bruises and abrasions. But it was noted that the incised wound on the right side of her neck had caused an air embolism, and this is ultimately what caused her death. Volk had divided Myang's body into sections, the torso in three parts, head, upper neck, lower neck and upper torso, lower torso and all limbs removed, and it was clear due to the softness and splintering of the bones that Volk had done his darndest to soften them in the cooking pot with the caustic chemicals. Neighbours would later express their shock to the media, commenting on how awful they felt for young Myang and how ill it made them to know that this smell they'd been whiffing for the past few days was her dismembered corpse effectively rotting within the couple's apartment. A man named Mr Neal, who was in charge of the pair when they worked at the Pleasure Dome, asserted afterwards that he believed it was Volk who lured Myang away from the safety of legal regulated sex work, where protection is afforded, to the seedy underbelly of the illicit trade, where drugs, assault and abuse go hand in hand. Neal also alleged that he knew Volk had assaulted Myang in the past, which contradicted other reports from friends and family who knew them. Neil's theory was that Volk simply needed Myang's money and that he'd been mooching off her for some time. He commented that Myang was a beautiful and peaceful person. As the Australian media picked up the gruesome story, 
and it made national headlines, Mai Yang's family and friends learned of her shocking fate. They mourned her loss and grieved as the days went along. Mai Yang's mother displayed sympathy and forgiveness for Marcus Volk, which seemed strange, but she let it go, commenting that she loves Marcus just as she loved Mai Yang. At Marcus Volk's funeral, Queen songs buzzed, tunes such as Another One Bites the Dust, Don't Stop Me Now and Rather Distastefully Kill a Queen. Over 200 family and friends attended his memorial and farewell in Ballarat. Tributes were paid and friends and family spoke positively of the young man whose secret life and final horrific acts were remain taboo topics at the funeral. Volk's uncle Wolfgang remembered him as a caring, loyal and gentle young man who carried a dictionary around with him as a youngster, loved comic books and karate. Volk was laid to rest in a pine casket to the tune of Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Crowds of people came to pay their respects to Mayang Presetio at a candlelight vigil held at New Farm Park. Numerous people representing the LGBTQI plus community gathered and advocated for her to raise awareness around not only the broader issue of domestic violence, but specifically a law that protects transgender men and women. Mayang was remembered as a caring, vivacious, free-spirited, passionate and loving young woman. And the coverage of this story in the media caused a lot of uproar, and this was particularly over how Mayang was portrayed. Much of the coverage focused on the aspects that she was transgender and a sex worker. She was repeatedly referred to as a transsexual by the International Business Times, which nowadays is perceived to be anachronistic. News.com.au referred to Mayang as a transsexual prostitute, two words we know from working in true crime circles to be extremely outdated and potentially offensive. The Daily Mail and the Courier Mail also published similar distasteful stories and headlines, and many of these outlets ran brazen stories that were littered with provocative bikini shots of Mayang, various shots of her posing and the like which she'd clearly used in her line of work. So not only did these gaudy headline-grabbing articles offend many people in the community, particularly transgender advocates, they missed a fairly obvious point when it came to reporting on this horrendous crime. And that was, it wasn't Mayang's gender or her work that got her murdered. It was her partner. It was a case of domestic violence at its core. And you can debate on the many facets of that, the potential aggravation, the higher risk people often say comes with conducting sex work, but in this instance, I can't see how any of that played in Marcus Volk chopping up and cooking his partner over a period of days. Surely, if it had been an accident or a rage or an overzealous act of self-defence, he would have come to his senses at some point thereafter, but he didn't. And none of that had anything to do with Mayang's gender or her posing semi-naked for photos that she clearly used in her profession. So I think those articles were rightfully criticised and it's pretty aggravating such uninformed supposed journalists and their alleged experienced editors were publishing garbage like this in 2014. Mayang's mother back in Bali still thinks about her daughter. She's forgiven Marcus but still has trouble thinking about what happened to her daughter but she wishes Marcus and his family the best and hopes they all forgive each other. A prayer service was held in Bali to remember Mayang once her remains were sent back to her mother. Mayang's mum and two sisters attended, grateful for all she'd done for them, sending much of her earnings back to support them over the years. Your thoughts on this one, Chloe? Yeah, what a sickening case. I'm guessing there's a heap that we don't know about these two people, particularly Volk, and what could motivate him to do something like what he did. But my main thoughts, we've already touched on it, but they're actually about the reporting that happened afterwards, because mostly it was terrible. As we said before, it was sensationalist, degrading, dehumanising, and didn't focus on the crime or what happened to the victim at all. Unfortunately, something we hear often in cases that involve people from marginalised or underrepresented groups. A quote from someone, I believe their name was Miranda Sparks, who attended the candlelight vigil that I read about, 
in an ABC article really sums up the injustice of it for me. She said, Certain titles used when addressing her were very reductive towards her identity and made her more of a commodity than a person who deserves respect for her memory. It demeans our humanity when people use that term that you see it on the front page of a newspaper. It has actually made a lot of people in the Brisbane trans community feel unsafe because we don't have that basic community support. They did go on to then say, However, people lashing back and speaking out against that has made an impact and has been quite heartwarming. I did read that this case prompted the LGBTQI plus community in Brisbane to campaign to create a domestic violence law for transgender women and men, something that I think has been done in many states across the country. Some LGBTQI people have a fear of reporting because of discrimination when using mainstream services. I'm not sure of the outcome of the campaigning following this, but I would say it would be an ongoing battle. And I guess I also want to say that if this story has brought up anything for you and you need to talk to someone, please do. 1-800-RESPECT is the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counselling Service. The number is 1-800-737-732. It's free, it's safe, and they are non-judgmental. Sean, your thoughts? Well, in 2017, there was a joint inquest into the deaths of Mayang Presetio and Marcus Volk. Indeed, the coroner's findings are where much of our information for this episode comes from, alongside a few articles that gave a bit more insight into the pair's early lives. But the inquest also focused on the police's response or, or reaction because Volk's death was classified as a death in custody. Ultimately, the police were all found to have had no role to play, and I think that was plain to see. They acted pretty reasonably in all instances on the information they had at the time. But I struggled to make sense of this case, really. I kept going back to the possibility that Volk might have retaliated initially to Myang attacking him because of the previous reports about that. But to me, that theory went out the window with how Volk acted in the time after he attacked and murdered Myang. Nothing else really means a thing when you consider what he did, the gravity of what he did to her in the moment, and particularly thereafter. That's not a snap to me. There was something off with this guy. And there's enough anecdotal evidence around to suggest that he was using Myang for money and that he'd assaulted her in the past and he was secretive, even with those close to him. I think there was, as you said, Chloe, um, something that we don't know there, a much deeper, darker psychological issue with Marcus Volk, and that inevitably boiled over, literally and disturbingly in this case. It goes without saying that I feel terribly for Myang and her family and for their loss, but also for Volk's family. Knowing that your son had done something like that would be a tough thing to live with, And at first, you know, I read that nothing was said about it at the funeral, and my first reaction was that kind of sucked, but then I thought, well, what were they going to say? To his family and friends, they didn't know this Marcus Volk. You know, he'd had some uh, dark glimmers, but they didn't know he'd travelled the world as a sex worker and that he'd married a girl from Indonesia uh, who was also engaged in that work. So they were not only just learning all of that and grappling with the facts of what had transpired, but coping with the loss of a different person in their eyes, a young man who liked karate and played the PlayStation. So I feel for them. I feel for Myang's family and especially for Myang. You talked about that quite a bit there at the end, Chloe, but really it just wasn't good enough how her murder was reported and how she was portrayed. She was a human being, by all accounts a warm soul, and one that was taken far too soon. Yeah, definitely. I think... She'll come up in my thoughts now for quite a while to come. Mm. Um, well, that's that story. Let's move on to our happy thoughts. So what's your happy thought? I can't see it because... I've written it since. I, I've gone offline. <laughs> so um, you can't steal mine. I won't. I won't steal yours. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> Mine's actually a podcast-related happy thought, ah. but not to do with our podcast. So I'm a, I think I've mentioned maybe once or twice on here before, but I'm a big fan of um, of Mike Ferguson, the True Crime All the Time yep. podcast, and him and Gibby have recently done one called The Reviews Are In. Yep. Nothing to do with true crime at all. Um, it's kind of like a light-hearted break from that deep and dark research and, you know, 
for themselves, but probably for their listeners who listen to lots of true crime during the week as well. Yeah. So I've really gotten into that. It's very funny. I basically find a bunch of hilarious reviews online and read them out, and it's a nice on a half hour break from the <laughs> from the deep dark week that we uh, we all often have, so. yeah. and they're pretty much comedy. If they're mostly like Amazon reviews from America, aren't they? Yeah, and they're pretty- just these people must try to be really funny because there's no way that they're just by accident. Yeah, well, you think, but it's hilarious it's what really some good. people. But it's funny what some people will write when they get so riled up about yeah. something that to us will seem fairly trivial. So yeah, it's good for a laugh, like not having BLT on a lunch menu, yeah. for example, maybe something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Well, my happy thought is actually a joke. So one of my friends, Matt, who listens to this show, shared a meme on social media that was great and a complete dad joke. So it's Father's Day on Sunday here in Australia. And in honour, I'm going to tell this joke. So are you ready? Because it's good. I'm ready. Did you know if you took the blood vessels out of an adult human and laid them end to end you would be sentenced to life in prison and they would make true crime documentaries about your heinous acts, you sicko. (laughs) It's so good because you think it's going to be one of those really like it wraps three times around the world, but then no. (laughs) And yeah, it just really gets you, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You give me grief about my dad jokes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do need a minute to recover? Uh, no. uh, so if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. You get bonus episodes over there, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show. Thank you to everyone who's reviewed us so far. And again, some helpful numbers for people here in Australia. The National Domestic Violence Helpline, as we said, is 1-800-RESPECT. So it's one 800 737-732. And anyone needing support or information about suicide or suicide prevention can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. As you mentioned before, Chloe, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Thanks for listening this week, everyone, and we will catch you all next week. Thanks. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.